Hey friends, we're so glad that you've joined us here today. My name's Kevin and I'm one of the pastors here at Friends Church in Orange. And whether you're watching this message online or listening to it in your car or on a run or wherever you are today, it's our hope that the words that are shared, that the message of God that is shared in this message will give you hope, life, and encouragement as you seek to live faithfully for Jesus in the midst of your world. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so by going to our website. We'd love to meet you, we'd love to connect with you, and we'd love to serve you in any way we can. I don't know if you realize this, in the past seven or 10 days, there have been a couple massive records that have been broken in our world. Of course, I'm talking about Taylor Swift smashing every single billboard possible record there is. Now, we've got one person that's excited about Taylor Swift's new stuff. Okay. Okay, who else has like been like binge listening to Midnight the last like few weeks? Okay, okay, there's a few people proud, a few people not doing it. Here's the thing. If you're a husband in the room and your wife's a millennial, at least, or Gen Z, you've been a Swifty by osmosis for the last 10 days. At least that has been my experience the last 10 days as I have just watched my wife listen and then show me and then listen together to so many things. As Taylor Swift released her 10th album, which crushed every single record known to man. What I found fascinating though, was not just the music and the intricacy of it and different stories that she's weaving together from her life, this being, she says, her first actual autobiographical album. What I found the most interesting was an interview I saw with her and Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show this week. And in that interview, as they began to talk and talk and talk about different things uh, that Taylor's experienced in her life and the way that she has now basically supplanted Beyonce as the queen of the music in America, at least for this week, right? They began to talk about all of this, and Taylor made an admission that caught me by surprise. She said that when she actually thinks about it, she recognizes that she likes the applause a little too much. She likes the applause a little too much, and as I listened to that and I heard that, I began to think not just about Taylor and the applause we've given her when we've gone to her shows, but I began to think about the ways that I also like the applause a little too much. And it hit me because today we're talking about what Jesus has to say about cultivating a life of humility. Before we get into our passage, one thing that just struck me this week as I was spending time learning and researching and looking at different tidbits across the spectrum of what Jesus might have for us, I came across a story, a story of a guy named Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn served in the House of Representatives for 50 years. That's 25 terms in Congress. You think you get a lot of mail right now, right? This guy sent people mail for over 50 years in a row. Rayburn was super influential in a lot of different things. He was the Speaker of the House for 17 years, and he wielded a ton of influence and a ton of power. But one thing I found unique and fascinating about Rayburn as I began to learn more about him this week was a little anecdote about his life. You see, one of the times when he was Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn found out that one of his friends who was a journalist had um, a teenage daughter who tragically passed away. And so Speaker Rayburn decided one day that he was going to go and he was going to check in on this reporter. 
And Rayburn walked over or went to the reporter's house and he knocks on his door and the reporter, probably still teary-eyed from everything that's going on with his daughter and with his family, opens the door, shocked to see the Speaker of the House, two, someone two heartbeats away from the presidency at his door. And Speaker Rayburn says, hey friend, I heard about your daughter. Is there anything I can do to help? And the man said to him, he said, I don't think so, Mr. Speaker. I think we have everything well taken care of. To which Speaker Rayburn replied, have you at least had your morning coffee? And the man said, no, in the midst of everything, I have not yet had my morning coffee. And Speaker Rayburn said, well, at least let me make you a cup of joe. And as they began to come together, he came into the kitchen, he began to make this cup of coffee, the reporter remembered something. He said, Mr. Speaker, I just realized, aren't you supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning? To which Speaker Rayburn replied, I was, but I called the president and told him it would have to wait because I had a friend who was in trouble. You see, friends, humility, humility is the antidote to pride. Thomas Merton was an amazing monk, just an amazing writer who lived about 50, 60 years ago. He said this, he said, pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. And so today, in a world that is run by pride, I'm excited because we get to talk about the way of Jesus. And we get to talk about how the way of Jesus, something that over and over and over again we've talked about in this series called Understanding Jesus, the way of Jesus is completely opposite of the way the world, the way our world works. Jesus calls us in a world run by pride to live lives that are marked by humility. So with that, would you guys open your Bibles with me? We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1, and then we're going to fast forward to verse 7. This is a story often referred to as the parable of the wedding feast. Luke 14, verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went out to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Stop for a quick moment. Jesus. We're given the setting, right? One Sabbath day. So typically, right, in the Jewish culture, this wasn't a Sunday. We've moved that as Christians, the Sabbath day, from a Saturday to a Sunday. But in his culture, this is a Sunday. And it's a Sunday that is designated and set apart for the entire community to honor, to worship God, and to be with one another, right? It was a day in which people weren't going to work because they didn't want to work on a day when God called them to rest. So much so that if you were going to throw a Sabbath feast, what would have happened is you would have, or your family would have, or your people who worked for you would have had to prepare all that food at least a day in advance, and so to invite someone to a Sabbath feast or a gathering on the Sabbath was no small ordeal. It wasn't you guys talking and you know, getting bored halfway through this message and figuring out, can I check into snooze from Yelp on my phone in the middle of this, right? It's not brunch in orange after church. This was a spectacle and it was an ordeal. We read that Jesus went to eat when the house of a prominent Pharisee, the word in Greek used for prominent is actually the word we would typically translate ruler. So this is either the leader of the Pharisees or a leader of the Pharisees. And remember, the Pharisees were a group of people who in their attempt and desire to honor God with everything had elevated rules above God's heart. That's what the Pharisees had done. 
And so the Pharisees are seen as the enemies to Jesus throughout the scriptures, not because they aren't trying to find God, but in their attempts to honor God, they're missing God in their midst. All right? So here's the setting. It's a Sabbath day. There's a feast that's been prepared. Jesus is going to this feast that's hosted by one of the leaders of the people who are trying to dishonor him and discredit him. And the last part of this is fascinating, where Luke adds for us that Jesus was being carefully watched. And so what Jesus was invited to is a trap. Jesus was invited to a place where these people, this leader was trying to dishonor and discredit Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Instead of standing back, instead of recognizing the trap, Jesus leans fully into it. And in verses two through six, Jesus does something incredible because the trap that was set for him, they actually put a man in front of him who had a condition called dropsy. Dropsy was a condition where his body was filled with so much fluid, he was not distinguishable from his former self. And they put this man in front of him because they know that Jesus has healed people on the Sabbath before, and they want to see if Jesus will do it again because it is their rules that you cannot heal on the Sabbath, and yet Jesus knows it's God's heart that healing would happen anytime, anywhere. And Jesus heals this man. He restores him in front of them. And then when the Pharisees ask him a question, Jesus actually asks one back to them of why he couldn't do this. Why would it be wrong? And they recognize that they are ultimately wrong, and they are stunned, and they are silent. The people that wanted to dishonor Jesus are ultimately dishonored in front of everyone else. But Jesus doesn't stop right there. What does he do? Jesus leans further into what's happening with these Pharisees and with the people gathered for this meal. Verse 7 says this. It says, when Jesus, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. Jesus noticed that these guys were jockeying for position. You see, a feast in Jesus' day, a, a meal of this sort that would have been on display, not just for those involved, but actually people outside who would have been watching what was happening in here, knew one thing. They knew that where you sat made a huge difference in how you were viewed or seen in the culture and in the world. You see, they knew that wherever you were in proximity to the host displayed for you and for your guests, everyone with you, just how valuable you were and what your status was in the community. And so if there was some way or some possibility where you were able to inflate your status, where you were able to, to, to get a better space than everyone else, you then would not just be known in that dinner, but throughout the community as having higher status than you did when you went in. And so in this context and in this space, Jesus, we're told, observes these people and just tells us he observes them as they grab their seats. But what we see in the parable he unfolds in just a moment is that what they were doing was fighting for the best position possible. And so with that in mind, Jesus tells them a story. Verse 8 says this. It says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the place of least importance. Verse 10, but when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. 
This story is something that I think we read it and we hear it and we see it, and that makes sense, basically, right? Jesus is saying, don't inflate your status before others because if you do, especially in the context in which he's talking about, he's saying there's a great chance that if you think of yourself as a 10 on the seating chart, right, the top, the number one, whatever, like one or 10, wherever you're going to be, right? Let's just say 10 is the top. That's the best spot you could be. And you walk in and all of a sudden someone of more repute comes in. He's like, how humiliating will it be when spots nine, eight, seven, six, five, and you're put all the way at the back? He's like, that's utterly humiliating. He says, it would be better when you go to a gathering like this not to assume that you're better than everyone else, but take the position that you are the least. Take the the, the spot at the kids' table. Get that one table at the restaurant, right, that's always having the restroom door back into it, right, every time that you're sitting there. Take that spot. Why? Because if you take the lowest place, if you cultivate a heart of humility, He says, the host who knows where you're supposed to be will look at you and say, bro, sis, what are you doing? You're supposed to be all the way up here. And rather than being humiliated in front of the entire community, you are lifted and you are raised up and people see that the host values you. And as I think about this, I even think about Jesus watching the scene, I think a little bit about what would it have been like for Jesus to even be at this gathering? Like, where was Jesus sitting? Did Jesus take the lowest seat? Did Jesus stand in the back while he watched it all happen and then began to come up and talk to these people? Where was he? What was going on? And did Jesus not at all find it a bit ironic and maybe a bit hurtful that all these people are jockeying for the best place with the host when the king of kings was in their midst? And so Jesus sees this, and he knows the depths of the hearts of the people he's talking to. Right? He knew that in their earnest desire to get the best place, that it didn't come from a place of goodness in their hearts. It came from a place of pride. Jesus knew that pride ruled in their hearts. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus had already called these guys out on their pride. He said this. He said, woe to you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus knew that this lived in their hearts, and he began to call it out. And after telling this story, right, to get them thinking about what would actually happen if they took the lowest place, Jesus gives them a one-liner that he uses over and over and over again in the scriptures. Verse 11 says this. He says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus is telling them and what he's telling you and I today is that there are two ways to live. We can be proud and ultimately be humbled, or we can be humble and we can be lifted up. We can be proud and ultimately be humbled, or we can be humble and ultimately be lifted up. Back to verse 11, it says this, right? It said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Look real quick at the will be that is there two times. Twice we see this phrase, will be. And in kind of theological terms, what we call this is a divine passive. The idea is this. It's not that you will humble yourself. 
And it's not even that someone else will humble you. It is God who is going to do the humbling. And it is God who is going to do the exalting or the raising up. And sometimes we look at this and we think what Jesus is talking about makes total sense in our day-to-day context. And on one hand, it absolutely does. And so the idea of assume the lowest place in all of your gatherings, in all of your work environments, in wherever you are, yes, let's live lives like that. And when he talks about the ultimate humbling and the ultimate raising up that God will do, it is something that may or may not happen in this lifetime, but it will certainly happen at the end of our lives. Those who live humble lives will be raised up because they know what their God has done for them and they don't live for themselves. And those who have lived lives marked by pride, who think they're better than anyone else and they have no need of a savior, will be humbled. And just like the Pharisees, pride can easily rule my heart. Pride can easily rule your heart as well. Right? We can easily inflate our status. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I remember the first time you know, a friend of mine from undergrad, from, from, from you know, college, finished his PhD, became a published author, and became a tenured professor at the age of 28. I felt like I hadn't done much with my life. And I began to wonder where I sat, and I began to maybe want to inflate my status in different circles because maybe I wanted to feel more important or higher up or more accomplished than I was. What does that look like for you? How in your world do you either inflate your status or maybe you live externally a humble life, but internally you are governed by pride and by arrogance and by self? This is a week where I didn't want to just tell stories of my life or experiences I've had, but I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to ask you guys stories. And so I put a little poll on Instagram this week. So if you're not following me, I guess you didn't you know, engage in it. That's fine. It's totally good. But enough people did. Don't follow me. It's a shameless plug. Totally. As we're talking about pride, that was a weird thing to say. Anyway, <laughs> just want to, you know, yeah, unfollow me. Let's do that. Let's go that way. There you go. No, but I put out a poll and just asked, hey, what does this, this idea of jockeying for position or trying to one-up yourself or whatever it might be, what does it look like in your world? And so many people in our community gave me different things. They said, hey, like, this is an example of what it looks like in my world. This is what it looks like in my business. This is what it looks like, you know, in in kind of my, my mom group. Different things like that. And all the examples were fantastic, but one example really stood out to me. And the example that stood out to me was of a friend who started talking about his brother's experience in law school. And this morning, I talked to a lawyer friend of mine who confirmed that this story and stories like them are very true. You see, law school's everything, uh, everything in law school is about status. And everything in law school is about class rank. Right? So the idea is you want to do everything you can to be the top of your class, or at least as close to it, because the better you do, the more scholarships are available to you, the more fellowships and internships are available to you, and ultimately, the better jobs and firms you're going to get a job with once it's all done. It's a dog-eat-dog world to try to get there to be the first and to be the best. And so what I learned this week utterly stunned me, because this never happened when I was studying theology, right? The people 
who were going to school to be lawyers would be so cutthroat when it would be test time, test season, that if you were studying in the library and you left your book and your laptop and everything else you had there, there was a chance that when you went to the bathroom and came back, some pages might be ripped out of your textbook so you couldn't study them anymore. There's a chance I've heard, not, I've heard this one for, firsthand to be true from someone, that sometimes in law school, as you're prepping for tests, what people are doing is sometimes giving you slightly wrong answers, knowing they're giving you the wrong answers because they want you to get one or two more questions wrong than they will get. And we look at that and we shake our heads and we say, oh my goodness, that's awful. And it is. It's a, it's a blatant example of pride and inflating self over one another. And yet, as I asked earlier, where in your world or where in your life, maybe in a less blatant way, but equally as blatant in your heart, do you see pride rule the day? Where does pride rule your life? God, unsurprisingly, has a lot to say on both the subject of pride and ultimately the subject of humility. 1 John 2.16 says this. It says, everything, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Proverbs 16.18 says this. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11.2 gives us the counterbalance to that. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Twice in the scriptures, we're told to clothe ourselves in humility. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because... And he quotes Proverbs right here. He says, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Colossians 3, 12 says this. It says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. Clothe yourself with kindness. Clothe yourself with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. See, there's this image that we get. Right over and over in the New Testament, it's this image of taking off or unclothing yourself from the things of this world and then clothing yourself, putting on the things that are of God. And there's so often times I go throughout my day, and I'm sure you do too, where it's just like, man, I just feel like all that I'm wearing is, is, is pride, it's envy, it's greed. It's the things that, that, that just capture everyone in my world. And I'm reminded I have to work to take those things off and choose to clothe myself with the things of God, with the fruit of the Spirit. And so the question before us today is what does it look like for us? What does it look like for me? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for us as a church and as a community to be people who are clothed in humility? C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, do not imagine. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He won't be a sort of greasy, smarmy, yes, that's a real word, we looked it up, smarmy person who is always telling you that of course he's a nobody. He says, probably all of you will think about him, the humble person, that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you've said to him. 
says, if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. In fact, he won't be thinking of himself at all. That's the kind of person I want to be. And as I began to just spend time in this passage and so many other things this week, I just began to think of people in my world, and I'm sure you can think of people in your world that fit that definition that C.S. Lewis gives us. People who are not thinking about humility, people who are not even thinking of themselves at all. I was thinking about um, our Next Steps team. You see, every single week, we come in here and we talk about either in church life, that's kind of our announcement block, or after the service, hey, if you're new or you feel new or you're just looking for what your next step is, go back to our next steps table and we've got a team of people who'd love to meet with you and care for you. And there's always an invitation from someone on the stage saying, I would love to meet with you. We would love to meet with you and care for you. But what a lot of people don't recognize or don't realize is there's actually a team of four people who one person every week loves that corner, sits back there, prepares to have conversations and care for you well, and yet they're never the person that's up here. And as I was meeting with this team this week, I just was so grateful and telling them, I'm so grateful for each and every one of you because there's so many weeks you show up prepared to care for people and you watch as everyone else talks to the people that were on stage and you might not have one conversation and yet you do it with a smile and you care so deeply for our church and it's beautiful. It's awesome. I was thinking about a guy who comes to the 1130 service named Russ. Russ is one of my favorite humans because Russ, without even asking, will just start cleaning this entire place when we have to shut it down. Russ just starts grabbing the coffee and cleaning it out and taking the trash and putting it away and doing all the things that are technically things that I'm supposed to be doing. And I've never asked Russ to do it, and he just does it out of the goodness of his heart. And every time I see Russ, my heart just goes, thank you. I think about our prayer team that each week is here after the service because they want to care for and pray for you, but something you may or may not be aware of is that they actually take time each and every week to not just pray over um, you in general, but to pray specifically for you as you fill out prayer requests on the back of the Connect cards that are on your seats. I got to experience just their grace and their kindness this week when they just called me to say, hey, we just want to pray for you uniquely this week. How can we do so? It was such a gift. And every time I spend time with people like this, I'm inspired to become more like them. And my hope today is even as you hear those stories or you think about people in your world that live similar lives, lives of humility, lives not about themselves, but lives directed towards others, I would hope that all of us together would begin to say, how do I live and look more like that? Well, as we kind of begin to take a turn towards a close This is the question for us here. It's how do we, as Friends Church Orange, cultivate hearts of humility? And the first point I have for us is this, is we cultivate hearts of humility by realizing and confessing our pride. Lewis goes on, the quote that we finished earlier wasn't the end. He says this, he says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. He says, the first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least, nothing whatsoever can be done before it. And if you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. 
you think you're proud or not proud, you are very proud indeed. So you see, the first step for us to be people who cultivate hearts of humility is to begin to recognize and realize our pride and then confess it before God and often before those for whom we are proud. Right, it's going to God and saying, God, I have so much pride in my heart and oftentimes it's going to the people that we are proud or trying to elevate ourselves ahead of and saying, hey, you might not even be aware of this, but I am so sorry. And after we realize and confess our pride, we cultivate hearts of humility by looking to the example of Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's an amazing passage. We read it a few weeks ago, but we're gonna read it again. It says this. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, we recognize our pride and then we immediately begin to take our eyes off ourselves, and we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on him and his example, and we should do this in all aspects of life, but especially when it comes to Jesus, because Jesus, the one being who never needed to assume humility, did so. And if Jesus chose to be humble, we should then be people who also choose humility. Jesus, God in the flesh, humbled himself by becoming just like us. Jesus humbled himself by being born in the dirtiest place possible, in a barn and a manger. Jesus humbled himself by having nothing in his appearance that would attract or draw people to him. The scriptures literally tell us Jesus was a fellow you would not even notice unless you were really, really looking. Jesus humbled himself by serving others, by feeding the poor, by spending time to heal those, and not just heal them physically, but heal people emotionally who had been discarded and thrown out by society. Jesus humbled himself by washing the feet of his disciples. And Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how do we cultivate hearts of humility? We look at the example of the God who humbled himself to serve you and me, even though he definitely didn't need to do so. And as we look to Jesus' example, we also begin to be people who learn to rely on the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus did nothing without the Spirit's leading. Jesus, we're told, over and over and over again, would be led by the Spirit, would go to do different things But Jesus also told his his followers, he told his disciples, he said, it's better for you if I go. It's better for you if I go and, and go away and go back to the Father, because if I do, then you won't have God next to you, but you will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means God will come and dwell within you. And he will lead you to all goodness and all truth. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? To point you back to Jesus. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. 
over and over and over again. It's to point you to Jesus, to what he has done, and to find and remember that your identity is in him. And that's why over and over and over again in the letters that we see in the New Testament, we are told to walk by the Spirit, not walk by our own pride. Walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. And finally, how do we cultivate hearts of humility? With all this in mind, we are people who learn and work to practice gratitude. We practice gratitude. But notice the sequential order of all these things, right? I have to almost get myself out of the way, recognize my pride, and to fix my eyes on Jesus. And guess what? When I fix my eyes on Jesus, what happens? My heart begins to swell with gratitude for what Jesus has done for me. Do you know when pride wells up in my life? It's when I'm not spending time with Jesus. Do you know when pride begins to really take foot in my life? It's when I'm not walking by the Spirit, but I'm walking by the flesh. And what Jesus would say over and over again is right to to, to lean into him, to be with him. And we see here that when we practice gratitude, when we're mindful of all that God has done for us, our hearts can't help but swell. And we can't help but be filled with just such utter thankfulness for what he's done. And friends, the reason why we do things, like today we're going to take communion. The reason why as the church we, we do something where we break some bread and we dip it in the juice and, and spend time in this way, the reason why we do that is because we recognize that we have so much to be grateful for. You see, we, we get our eyes off ourselves long enough to recognize that Jesus didn't have to die for us. I think we take that for granted all the time. But Jesus chose to humble himself so that he, in the end, might lift us up. And so in just a moment, we're going to cap this message on humility by recognizing our pride. And so in just a few, the band's going to come up and they're going to play a song. And I would invite you to do this. Before you come to the table to take the elements, and yes, there are gluten-free and gluten-full elements. But before you come to the table to take the elements, here's what I would encourage you to do. Spend a minute. Spend time with God. Ask him to reveal your pride and spend time confessing that pride. And then fix your eyes on the cross, on Jesus and what he has done for you. And notice that Jesus is not on that cross because Jesus came off the cross so that you might have life and life to the full. And then come and receive the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice so that you can be reminded in gratitude of what your humble God has done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. Thank you that you have modeled for us a humility that we do not deserve. Thank you that you humbly were born a baby, humbly entered into our midst, humbly washed your disciples' feet, humbly received the death that we deserve so that we might be raised to life with you. Thank you.